Before we get to today's show, I want to let you know about a brand new sponsor called Skillshare. Now, Skillshare is a learning platform with online classes taught by the world's best practitioners. It's personalized on-demand learning with tons of cool topics like design and photography, but also things for you entrepreneurs out there like marketing, business analytics, and a ton more. Now, no matter what this year has in store, Skillshare allows you to spend your time creating something meaningful. It's a killer service that allows you to learn valuable skills at your own pace right from your laptop. It's also an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. Now, listen, in addition to Listit, which I have so much fun doing, I'm also involved in another podcast called Hiding Something. I co-host the relevant podcast. I produce a ton of podcasts, and I'm making content all day long. Now, part of the challenge of making content is staying inspired, staying creative, and using your time efficiently. It's easy to let time get away from you, but that's why I was so stoked to find out about this class. It's called Productivity for Creatives. Build a system that brings out your best. Now, it's from Thomas Frank, who's an author, a YouTuber, and entrepreneur. Now, what I enjoyed so much about it is it had real practical applications. Things like scheduling your time, using it efficiently, but also how to find inspiration day to day. Also, Andy talks about things like how to create productive workspaces. This was super, super practical and really helpful. After watching it, I immediately started applying some of the principles, and I seriously feel more productive and inspired. They also have a ton of other classes that I think listed listeners would enjoy. Here's a couple. They have one called Artivism, Create Inspiring Art from Change from Nicholas Smith. They also have one, Creating Your Dream Career, Uncover and Apply Your Creative Strengths from Andy J. Pizza, and also one that's really fun called Portrait Photography, Shoot and Edit Instagram-Worthy Shots. Now, if you want to check it out, you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash listed and get a free trial of a premium membership. That's a great deal. Remember, it's Skillshare.com slash listed. I really hope you dig it. All right, here's today's show. What's up, everybody? You are listening to List It, the show where me and my guests rank and list things in pop culture. And we have a very special show for you today. It's a little bit different. Today, I'm talking with two filmmakers who are behind a new true crime docuseries that there's a good chance is on the homepage of your Netflix uh, right now. It's called Murder Among the Mormons. Uh, and it's directed by documentarian Tyler Meesum and filmmaker Jared Hess. Now, you've probably seen uh, films by both of these directors. Tyler directed an incredible documentary about James Randi that's called An Honest Liar. Now, James Randi actually makes an appearance uh, as a character in my other podcast, Hiding Something, which you can listen to. And it's and the film is co-directed by Jared Hess. He's the writer and director behind movies you've probably seen, like Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libre, Masterminds. He's, he's directing the upcoming Nicktoons adaptation and the new kind of Shanghai uh, action comedy. So two really big filmmakers. And they wanted to tackle a really interesting true crime story that has to do with document forgeries, religion, um, domestic terrorism, and it's really a story that's kind of been forgotten. So I'll give a little bit of context for you if you haven't seen the series. Now, I will say this. During the discussion, 
we we get kind of spoilery, but not. But again, this is a story that happened 30 years ago, so a lot of the details are already public. But if you want to come in totally fresh to the documentary, you can listen to this podcast after you watch. Otherwise, we kind of let you know during the interview when we're going to discuss items that are kind of spoilery. Just for a little context, back in the early 80s, a series of homemade bombs went off around Salt Lake City. Now, as investigators were trying to determine who who set those bombs and who was responsible ultimately for several deaths that these bombs caused, they uncovered this really crazy scandal involving Mormon theology, document forgery, uh, history, church cover-ups. It is a fascinating documentary. So I want to have Jared and Tyler on to talk about the series, but also kind of list some of their own true crime and documentary influences. Like I said, most of the interview, we ended up talking about the series because I was so fascinated by it. Uh, But there is some interesting discussion of other works of true crime that inspired these two filmmakers. So here is today's show. Hope you like it. It's about Murder Among the Mormons with Jared Hess and Tyler here it is. Religion sometimes breeds amongst people some extremes. The first explosion ripped through a downtown office building, killing one man. The second explosion outside of a holiday home claimed another life. Panic began to ensue because two bombs suggest a serial killer. Then the shock came. There are very expensive documents in the automobile. This is an original? Yes, this is an original copy. The Salamander letter gave a far different story of the church's roots. Instead of God and angels, now it's salamanders and magic. Best material was potentially devastating. People who wanted to protect the church didn't want this document to come to light. Jared and Tyler, first, tell me how you guys, you know, one of, uh, Tyler, I know you've done a lot of work. We were just talking about your incredible James Randi documentary, which for, if you're listening to this and you also listen to my other true crime podcast, Hiding Something, you definitely want to check out because he is a, a figure that shows up in, uh, in Hiding Something. It's a film called An Honest Liar is Among Your Work, uh, but you've done a lot in the documentary space. I Want My MTV, a lot of really great films and series. Uh, Jared, obviously, you've done a bunch of features. You have a lot of features, but they're all, most of your work has been scripted and a lot of scripted comedies. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people obviously know uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libre, Master. I mean, the list goes on and on. So how did you guys come together and why did you want to tell the story together? Well, how we came together is we've known each other for decades actually um jared and i came up as crew in the state of utah and jared was an assistant camera operator and i was a grip and at one point jared was a, an assistant camera uh, on a, a a boy band video that i directed which you'll never find <laughs> humble beginnings <laughs> <laughs> um regardless when when we had the idea to come up with this story we met we had lunch we had sushi and before the sushi came out, we actually said, let's make this film together. And that was four years ago. Mm. And, and and tell me a little bit about, you know, obviously you guys uh, are from Salt Lake City. So you have a deep knowledge, your family, family members involved with, you know, at different levels in leadership in the LDS church. What was your relationship with this actual story? Because you, you both had to be relatively young when these bombings first happened here in the in the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, we were 
we were. And, and we really didn't kind of learn about the story until we were in our 20s, mm-hmm. both of us. Um, and it's something that has existed in the mythology of the culture and the community here in Salt Lake City. Um, you know, it was a very regional, isolated thing that happened. It definitely made national news at the time. But but once it was discovered that Hoffman was a forger and a murderer, you know, people didn't talk about it that much. I think the community needed to heal and move on. And, you know, a lot of people were embarrassed. There were these huge institutions whose reputations were thrown into question, whether it was the FBI, Sotheby's, the LDS Church. Um, who had all been victims of of Mark Hoffman and his deception, uh, but this you know this this story has been a passion project. I think for Tyler and I, we live here in Salt Lake City. I live just a few blocks away from where Mark Hoffman produced his forgeries, constructed the bombs. So it's really in our face, you know. And 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 you know, Tyler, his cousin was a college classmate of Mark Hoffman and a friend of his. And I've grown close to people that were all directly affected by this story. So um, over the years, we, it's just been incubating for a long time as we've gathered firsthand accounts from people. We've all become fairly close friends with all the subjects. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a part of our lives for a long time. I, I, you know, have done some reporting in the past on domestic terrorism and I, you know, a lot of religion reporting. I, you know, I grew up in the evangelical uh, church and I know obviously you guys grew up uh, with the LDS church. But this is a story that despite sort of that background, I really didn't have a lot of knowledge of. You know, you would think these bombs go off on American soil in a city that is not really known at all for any sort of unrest, much less an acts of domestic terrorism. And mm-hmm. because so many large institutions were involved, including the LDS church, including the FBI, um, I- including a lot of these, uh, you know, experts in forgery and, and documents. Do you think that had something to do with the, the story sort of being forgotten over the years? Or do you think that it was just so detached from other acts of violence that we see because Hoffman's motives became so obscured towards the end when it came to the violence that that is that the re- what, what do you think the reason is that a lot of people may not be aware of this? I mean, first and foremost, it was 37 years ago. So, you know, there's an entire generation of individuals who weren't born yet. Uh, And, you know, in in today's age, when news media comes pretty quickly, things get forgotten. Uh, It was also somewhat of a regional story. It was here. Now, it did make national news, but at the time, it really wasn't heavy national news. It was here in Utah, specifically, for the most part. Uh, It was also kind of a unique story that... uh, I think a lot of people wanted to move away from and move on from, whether that be the victims or the faith, uh, I, I think, or, or the document collecting world in general. You know, yeah. a lot of people had, I hate the term egg on their face, but they did have egg on their face because of Mark Hoffman. So I think there was a number of people that just kind of wanted to move on. The beauty of this is, as storytellers, uh, it's an amazing, remarkable story, richly layered. And because so few people knew about it, 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 it allowed Jared and I to. Uh, tell the story as it happened and to keep as many secrets as we can regarding the guilty parties uh, over this three-part series that we did. 
Yeah, it it, it was such a, a fact, and and that for people who haven't seen it yet, I'm gonna I'm gonna save a couple questions for the end be, because I want people to be able to be like, okay, I'm gonna stop the podcast here and watch the series because I don't want to spoil it for them uh, because it does have a lot of interesting twists that come along the way, and it really makes. What's interesting, the way you guys framed it and the chronology, you know, how how it's it's ordered is that you put the the viewer in the shoes of the people who are experiencing this, which was it was a lot of confusion about who was responsible. But at the core of the the crime is a larger mystery, and that is a mystery about the source of several documents that call into question some fundamental beliefs of of, you, you know, the Mormon church church. You know, what was it like unpacking that element of the story of, you know, you're basically having to talk to people who experienced a type of crisis of faith that wasn't internal. It was it was very external. It was there there might be proof that what I think is is wrong. It what you know, what was it like trying to tell that aspect of the story because I found that as fascinating as even kind of the acts of crime and violence. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the thing um, that Tyler and I spent the most time on, I think, was establishing the foundational beliefs of Mormonism early in episode one. Because to really comprehend the context and the disruption that the white salamander presented to the church, you really kind of had to set that up. And 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 you know, it's funny. One of the uh, the news reporters at the time, Rod Decker, who is featured in the film, um, his analogy was like. That would be like if somebody found documents that said that Moses actually got the Ten Commandments from the ghost of Elvis Presley. Yeah. So you've got this, you know, yeah. this 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 story that a, a huge faith tradition believes in that they hold sacred, whether it would be the virgin birth or 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 name any story in in, in the Bible that's completely undercut. You've got, you know, this founding story that Mormon missionaries all over the world share in their first lesson, which is this boy didn't know what church to join. He was visited by God, the father and in Jesus Christ when he went out to pray. And then later was visited by an angel that told him to translate these gold plates into the book of Mormon. And so you've got that story. These are all Christian familiar terms like God and angels. And then suddenly you've got this document that shows up that says, actually, Here's what really happened. Joseph Smith was involved in folk magic. This was like witchcraft. You yeah. know, there was this white salamander that directed him to it. He was involved in money digging. So it's like, whoa, it was this huge kind of scandalous retelling of, of the origins of their faith. So it was, it was, you know, I mean, it was devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, seeing how conflicted some of the people involved were, you know, whether they were, you know, people who were trading, buying, selling documents or people who were verifying, you could see how conflicted some of them were because a lot of the people who, um, you know, were involved early on were members of the same church as as Hoffman and a lot of the the, the people affected, you know. I but the one thing that I kind of felt was encouraging, and I wonder kind of what your guys's approach was when it came to how church leadership was depicted, because obviously they're going to be protective of critical doctrine, but at the same time, there's nothing in the film that I really felt like depicted their reaction in any sort of negative light. Um, if anything, I felt like there was some degrees of of 
of um, you know transparency with how they were seeking to get these documents verified. Mm-hmm. What was the process like trying to depict church leadership in this film? Because that is seems like the one area where religion to religion you know, leadership tries to be very protective of doctrine. How delicately or authentically, you know, what was it like trying to maintain that balance of how they were depicted? I mean, ultimately they know the story inside and out because they lived it. And, you know, we um, just did an interview, uh, our executive producer, Joe Berlinger, and he put it perfectly as it relates to documentary and true crime. He said, you have to honor the truth, even if the truth may hurt. Um, and, and that really was our approach to the material. It's like, we really just wanted to showcase what these people were going through and people make mistakes under incredible amounts of pressure and confusion. And that's, that's what was happening again, but, but there were, and Tyler, I'll I'll let you speak to it, but yeah, it's, it, it was a complicated, very uncomfortable situation. I don't think the church had ever found themselves in the spotlight of a scandal that involved murder like this. Ever before the the LES community is uh, one of, of individuals who are very trusting of their own. Uh, other Mormons or they they trust these individuals. Also, the Mormon faith is very much interested in collecting their history, and albeit it's a relatively short history as far as religions go. So this is the this is the world in which Mark Hoffman thrived. And by saying all this, we may give away the spoilers that you were hoping to save for a little bit. But it's it's difficult to talk about this story. No, that, that that's I'll warn the listeners now. There may be some spoilers, yeah. But the, the great thing about true crime is a lot of it's available, like on like Wikipedia, if, for the very curious minds. Sure, sure. But if if you haven't watched the the series, go watch it. Come back because you'll enjoy yeah. this podcast more and the series more by not yeah, knowing some yeah, of these yeah, yeah, uh, reveals. Yeah. But but this world of of Mormonism in Utah uh, was where Mark was able to thrive. He used these tools, uh, the, the 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 means of these other individuals against them because of their desire to collect these documents, and that includes the Mormon faith. Uh, they they wanted to preserve these documents. They wanted to collect these documents, and in some of these documents, they wanted to hide them. Some of the documents that Mark found were, in fact, quite damning to the belief and the teachings of their faith, including that God and angel didn't come down to Jesus, or an angel didn't come down to Joseph Smith, but a a lizard did, or that, uh, you know, Joseph Smith was a money digger. So for them, they were really, they were really in a tough place, knowing that these documents were at the time real, uh, knowing that they could be damaging to their entity. And how they study these and how they present these to a public, how the faith of uh, millions of people who've been taught one thing can be completely altered uh, by the discovery of something that was in somebody's attic, if you will. Now you know this is something that's alluded to uh, in the in the third act of the of the of the series, um, but one that I, I really couldn't stop thinking about because Mark Hoffman is a very complicated individual as he's depicted in this series. But you 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 increasingly come to believe, especially with some of these really powerful clips of the of audio of his kind of reflecting on the crimes behind bars. Um, you really come to believe he's probably on the some sort of spectrum of sociopath. He doesn't seem to have, he seems to be remorseful that things worked out the way they did for him, but he doesn't seem to have 
very much empathy towards the victims of his crimes. And you guys allude to something in the film and discuss it a bit. But, um, you know, if he was if he had gotten away with what he was with these forgeries, you know, he could potentially do forgeries on a much larger scale that could really upend LDS doctrine what do you think if he hadn't and and I hesitate for true for documentarians to speculate. I know that's sort of, you know, but we're on a podcast. So I, I just kind of curious. I'm sure you guys put a lot of thought. If Mark Hoffman had had never if his fraud had never been detected, what kind of damage do you what do you think his ultimate end game? I know, you know, there are these you know, 116 pages that of doctrine that he could have forged, or was he only out for money? Or, you know, he has these very complicated motives early on where he's just, you know, he's hiding coins as a child to show that he's good at finding things. What again, it might be impossible to speculate, especially with a character like him, but for you guys who spent a lot of time thinking about this, where do you think this would have ended if Mark Hoffman had never gotten caught early on? Yeah, yeah. There, I, I, you know, it's funny at a very early age, Hoffman became addicted to deceiving people. He loved the power he got from it. Um, and, and so that's that's definitely one component. And especially with his first discovery, the Anthon transcript, which ultimately affirmed the 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 beliefs and teachings of the Latter-day Saints, that you know, that put him on the map. And the fact that it was his first thing and he hit a home run right out of the gate, I think it, you know, his ego was boosted immensely. And and after that, you know, he would find things that you know supported the beliefs of the church and then things that were skeletons in the closet that they would rather not know about and so he exploited people's fears he exploited their wants um and ultimately he was so versed in history and like very obscure history that the things that he wrote not only did they check out forensically they had the right paper the right ink the right handwriting which is just an incredible thing that he was able to perfect um, but he was able to channel the voices of these people mm. and and the actual content checked out historically almost perfectly that nobody ever questioned it. Historians, scholars validated it. Um, and and the story that you mentioned um, in early, there's this kind of apocryphal story in Mormonism where when Joseph Smith began the translation of the Book of Mormon, the first 116 pages got lost. And then he had to start over and everyone, you know, within the church and, and, and detractors of the church that don't believe in it have always wondered, gosh, what was in those first 116 pages? Cause ultimately maybe it could prove that the church was wrong, right? If those first 116 pages were any way different from uh, you know, what we know now as the book of Mormon. And so Hoffman was preparing to, he had an outline and as a screenwriter, like, you know, he's almost conjuring up this Dungeons and Dragons campaign mm-hmm. for what these 116 pages were. And they had, you know, he, he was very early in the process, but as Richard Turley, um, one of the historians we interview in the film said, he's like, that would have been his Mona Lisa. Like, yeah. like, like that, he, he, that, that would have, for the church, they would have paid tens of millions of dollars for that. Um, and who knows what, kind of frightening things he would have put in there that would have been worrisome to the faith. 
I, I just couldn't stop thinking about someone, the, the amount of power he must have felt, knowing that he could essentially show, well, these are credible. Look, the handwriting matches these other ones that's already been verified. The level of power to manipulate in, in you know a very large religion's entire doctrine with forgeries, that alone is just a fascinating thing to unpack. So, guys, one thing we wanted I like to do on the show is we, we have uh, uh, creators and filmmakers and artists list some of their influences. Um, and this true crime series, I feel like, has all the hallmarks. You know, Tyler and I were talking before we got recording. A lot of the hallmarks of what we see as, you know, as what makes some some entries into the genre so interesting, particularly interesting characters. Everyone you meet in this film is someone who you every time they're on screen, it's like, oh, man, this person was born to be on screen. Like they're just so compelling in their own interesting way and are legitimately interesting characters. But I wanted to kind of see unpack a little bit of what your guy what you guys kind of see as some of your personal influences in the true crime genre whether that's film, books, or you know, now even pod, you know, podcasts like Serial have kind of brought it to the the forefront. Jared, let's start with you, man. What what is something that you would credit as a as an influence in the true crime genre that kind of helped informed how you wanted to tell the story? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite true crime films uh, that's come out recently is one on Netflix called The Innocent Man by Clay Tweel. Mm. I believe that these are completely coerced. Something was really rotten at the core of this case. Blood sample is never obtained. Fingerprints are never obtained. What are the police trying to cover up and who's going to get to the bottom of this? How close did you come to being executed? Five days. The fact that your life can be taken away that easy is horrifying. We just don't expect the police to play dirty. It's all about winning. And along the way, if the truth gets blurred, there was no evidence of stab wounds or twisted. Everything about their confession has been proven wrong. That's too bad. I believe the men who are in jail are not the men who did it. They're replacements for the real people. This is going to happen again. Don't think otherwise. Just an incredible story, super complex. And it, you know, it, it was a film that ultimately exonerated people who were wrongly accused of a crime they didn't commit. Um, and just the power of that is is amazing to me. But but also, um, you know, I think his use of recreations, mm. which there are a number of in that film, were done to me, they were they were pitch perfect and and he tonally they were just really, really, really amazing. But um for me another film not true crime but as it relates to interesting characters and documentaries is one of errol morris's first films gates of heaven and it's all these incredibly interesting colorful personalities that are uh obsessed with pet cemeteries <laughs> um and it's one of the most unbelievable films where the, uh, you know and it actually informed my first film, Napoleon Dynamite, but it's literally like a static camera that just sits there with these people. It, really amazing, interesting subjects and just lets them talk. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it, it, for me, that's always been an influence. And I think especially as we were setting up the interviews for this film, um, it is always just kind of in the back of my mind. 
It's interesting you said Errol Morris because that was I could I could kind of tell you know I not it wasn't derivative anyway but I could but that idea uh, you know you see it he had a, a recent series called Wormwood that's on Netflix uh, but also going back to like Thin Blue Line where you know there's no narration in his in his it's it's sort of the opposite of like what Sarah Kane did in like Serial where you're only hearing for from the people who lived it but the interesting thing is like you said the camera lingers for those extra couple beats and that is what really pulls you you know that's where like there is i i i forget the, the character's name but he almost has like a tick when he gets stressed and he starts like blinking a lot of filmmakers cut away you know and it's like okay he said what he has to said we well, i can shave four seconds here and we can go to the next thing but you sit there and you see the discomfort that he's experiencing having to recreate that my father, Frank Olson, was an army scientist. His research group had a relationship with the CIA. They take him to New York Tuesday morning, early Saturday morning, he's dead. What was my father doing? What was the CIA doing? What happened there? As filmmakers, where do you kind of see the line between depicting a subject vulnerably and authentically without sort of exploiting difficult emotions? Like how hard is it kind of walk that line? You know, I, I, I think there's an element of always, you have to, you have to have a respect for your subjects. You know, they're, they're giving up their time. They're telling you a story. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of respect that and treat their story with respect and, and them as human beings with respect. Uh, you know, when we sit across from somebody, when you're interviewing somebody in a documentary, uh, you know, you're you're listening to them. And it's this weird element where a lot of times people aren't used to being listened to for two, three hours without somebody that's supposedly hearing them not responding with their own tale of woe, if you will. So I, I think we're always, you know, trying to figure out the best way to get their story, but also to try and get the best story out of them. You know, our editor, one of the, we had two editors on this, amazing guys, Matt Precop and Greg O'Toole. And Greg, you mentioned like the lingering, and, and we did that a lot with many of our characters. Greg is the mm-hmm. king of that. He, he loves in his edits yeah. just holding on to things for a little bit longer. And one thing I've always learned in, in interviewing subjects in a documentary is uh, when they finish, just, just don't jump right in, you know, just sit back for a little bit because they'll have a reaction. They'll have something they'll say, uh, you know, something, a way they'll look or they'll give you a little bit more, you know, people don't like silence. And when you give them a little bit of silence, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So they'll make a motion or they'll say something. And a lot of times that's where the gold is. Um, when you're interviewing a subject for a documentary. Yeah. Well, Tyler, you've done a lot in uh, the documentary space. And so, you know, which is really where I obviously there's lots of different types of true crime. But recently it's been kind of uh, in within documentaries where true crime has really uh, seen a big takeoff. Um, What do you what 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 was one of your influences when it came to, you know, even if it wasn't a direct influence, but just something that kind of uh, uh, informed your perspective about the genre in particular? You know, it's odd that I made a true crime because I can't necessarily say that I'm a a huge fan of them by and large. And Mm. uh, it may just be that there's a glut of them and many of them kind of follow the same mold. By and large, I, I like character studies. I'm Mm. I'm fascinated with following an individual or a group of individuals who are, um, who are 
who are interested in doing something. The majority of humans don't do much. And sorry, but a lot of people just go to work, they do their job. And so when you find a character who has ambition and acts upon that, and when the camera follows that person, I think you've got a rich story. So while I do love true crime, and you know, our executive producer has made the best true crime, an early true crime, uh, you know, Joe Berlinger with Paradise Lost, which is one of my, my favorite films, just a great, it was a, a, a long form film before long form series were popular. But me, I like, I like odd and unique characters. I like quirky characters. I mean, one of my favorite documentaries of all time is American Movie by Chris Smith. Yeah. His whole life is making this one film. You, you have two hours tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and be an extra in a film. You get your name on the credits, man, as a producer. And of course, there'll be a whole crowd of people here. So we got to make like a line where people can't go. Have a hell of a lot of assistant directors saying, hey, hey, could you step back like five feet? I think my mom's going to have to end up going out in the woods. I have my shopping to do. Okay, you got to spread apart that way. All of the extras have just fell through, except for Mike Shank right there. We used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. Does everyone have brown gloves? Oh, dude, dude, dude. I'm broke, man. I gotta get gas tomorrow. And dude's talking about making a feature film. Uh, the name of the film is Coven. Coven, Coven. Uh, Coven, uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no, Coven sounds like oven, man. And that's just, it doesn't work. Like what a quirky, interesting, small guy that you're in this human's world. Typically, I like the kind of documentaries that are really hard to pitch. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like imagine pitching an American movie. Yeah, these two weirdos want to make a cult of movie about a coven. Yeah, right. Yeah. Give me two million dollars to make this movie. It's not going to yeah. happen. And, and so, yeah. uh, those are the kind of films that I really like. That put yourself in this world that you would never be put in. Um, that's that's those are some of the films I like. Yeah, I'm so glad that mo the movie got name dropped because I feel like that's the very underappreciated uh, work of cinema. That if it kind of I feel like audiences right now are really ripe for because they're looking for those sort of quirky characters that, you know, are really driven. It's ironic because I've never I, I, I didn't think about it when I was watching uh, uh, your guys's film, but it's the, the motives at the end of the day were ambition and ego in both of those films. You know, one person to be this great American film. Obviously, one of them's not a murderer, you know, but, uh, you know, ambition to for for recognition. You know, it, it seems to be the driving and both the 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 lead in an American movie and um, uh, murder among the Mormons is they're both sort of outsiders is they're, but they seem to lack the self-awareness to really realize that they're outsiders. Is that a character? Is that a characteristic that you guys saw in Mark Hoffman was this sort of lack of self-awareness about his own sort of quirkiness? Because that was hard to it was hard for me to gauge, partly because a lot of the interviews came with him behind bars. But what was what is, was your guys sense of his own self-awareness of how he was perceived? Yeah, it's funny. Um you know, people describe him as a nerd. Like he was super unassuming. He had this ah shucks vibe. He seemed bookish. Um, and, and that kind of personality really enabled him to manipulate people and get away with, with what he did. Um, but yeah, he, you know, Tyler and I have talked about this a lot. It's really 
incredible to us that he kept this secret to himself for so long. And, and you, you think that somebody that was pulling off these deceptions at such a grand scale, he'd want to brag about it to somebody. He'd, he'd want to, he'd want an accomplice to be able to pull it off, but he kept it all bottled up inside. I mean, there was one moment obviously where he told his wife, Oh yeah, actually I, I forged this and then took it back and said, no, I'm just kidding. It's real. Um, that's really the only kind of crack in his armor. I think looking back on his experience, but yeah, he, he was so unassuming, but you could tell, you know, like when he and Shannon Flynn go to the desert to shoot Uzis and drive fast yeah. cars, there was a part of him that wanted to be like the quintessential eighties, like superhero, you know, whether it was yeah. like the A team or Miami vice or, or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's, he's a very complex character. Jared, I know you mentioned The Innocent Man and uh, the work of Errol Morris, and, and Tyler mentioned American Movie is another kind of documentary that informed kind of the approach you guys want to take. Were there any kind of other, specifically in the kind of true crime area that, you know, kind of informed how you wanted to frame the story, or just particularly you kind of found as like a standout work in the genre? I think one that we had referred to often uh, in, in putting this together was uh, Wild Wild Country. Mm, um, yeah. And that may have been a little long, but by and large, it was that 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 unbelievable story that no one knew of. That you're watching and going, "How did I not know that this exists?" Um, yeah. And and you know, Jared and I would talk about that often and trying to peel this onion back uh, the way those filmmakers did. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrusts Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. They're run by satanic power. There is talk of vigilantes who may seek revenge on the Rajneeshis. A bomb went off in the middle of the community. More than 60 followers evacuated. It was a catastrophe. One interesting thing that, you know, I kind of have observed in, in, in a lot of these true crime films is, okay, how would, how would I react if I was, you know, if Wild Wild Country kind of enraptured by these interesting people who had bought this land and it seems like, you know, want to start this cool commune? Or how would I react if I'm on the jury of Anand Syed in Serial and it seems like I'm presented with this evidence? You know, and I kept thinking about how I would react you know, if I was, a, you know, a member of the LDS church in Utah, these acts of violence are happening. And at the same time that these documents appear there that to, to, to question my faith, you know, when you guys, obviously as filmmakers, you have to, to some degree, put yourself in the, in the position of the people that are living this, you know, that just seems so far, even with all of the craziness that's happened in the world since then, just to see that in Salt Lake with an institution like the LDS Church was very jarring because it, that that seems like as an outsider, at the very least, a very a picture of stability. You know, um, what was it like putting yourself as a position of look? This is rocking the foundations of the uh, of the faith on a on a kind of philosophical level, but it's also rocking the foundations of the city because there are literal bombs going off. What was it like putting yourself as in a position as people living in Salt Lake City at the time of this? 
Yeah, I mean, we we wanted to let the people who lived through it tell their story. And, and we felt like that was the most powerful way to really communicate what was going on, what they were living through, all the confusion as it related to the to the documents and also the bombings. Um, and, and, you know, when we were interviewing our subjects, a lot of them had not spoken about this for over 35 years, but it still had such a deep effect on, on their lives. Like they remember every detail of it. It was, it was that traumatic. And, and I remember when we were interviewing, uh, Mark Hoffman's ex-wife, uh, Dory Olds, uh, Dory Hoffman at the time. We asked her, you know, tell us about the moment that you first learned that your husband had been injured in a car bomb. And each time that she said it, she she stuttered through saying, I got a call about a car, 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 car bomb. We were like, oh, hey, Dory, can you can you do that again? It, you know, it was hard to kind of understand. And each time she said it, going back to that moment. It, it, we quickly realized and felt horrible for asking her to say it again and again, that this was very triggering for her. And the trauma from that moment lives inside her to this day. And so, um, you know, again, it was, it was such an eye-opening experience as people really bore their souls to us um, and relived these, these, these horrible things that happened to them. So, yeah, we just wanted to let people, again, tell their story. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, you know, the, speaking of, you know, people telling their story and also it can be kind of triggering reliving this. What's the reaction been like from people within the community? And I know obviously it's officially dropping day, but I'm sure there's been people who've been able to kind of screen it beforehand. What has the reaction been like for the the obviously limited number of people who have been able to to watch the series that actually lived it? Was it is it is something that they've wanted to engage with and kind of relive? And if so, what have you kind of observed there? emotional but also sort of intellectual uh reaction being of how it was depicted uh, a lot of people i think are just grateful that this story is finally coming out um, everyone involved in it really knew uh that this is a remarkable story i mean it's it's it, you couldn't write this it, it, it wouldn't be believable so first and foremost i think people are just grateful that this story is going to be told and uh told you know not in 20 minutes or uh, you know, on a mediocre network, yeah. uh, that it was going to be told in its entirety and fully and by seasoned filmmakers. So I don't think anyone's really seen it yet. I mean, it literally dropped, you know, this morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we are anxiously <laughs> waiting. It's always nerve wracking when you uh, reveal uh, a, sub a film to the subjects. Uh, we're hoping for good things, but by and large, I think they'll be pleased. I, I think we told the story effectively and genuinely, and we showed it with, you know, by for the most part, Jared and I, well, all the way, we, we like these humans. These are real good people. They're in our community. And Jared and I didn't just interview them on a Tuesday for a couple of hours. We got to know them over the course of yeah. quite literally years. We'd meet with them. We'd take them to lunch. We'd, we'd get to know them. And I think in this age of, in many ways, divisiveness, where it's so easy to put someone on camera and mock them and make fun of them or yeah. finally be their enemy. And I think about what I want to sit down with someone and have a documentary made about my life. And I'd probably say no, even though I'm a documentarian. Um, I think that we, we show that we really do respect these human beings and we respect their story. 
and we, res- we respect their time and the, the, the emotions that they gave to us willingly. Uh, and I think that, that, that audiences can read that. I think that's important to relay in today's era of media making, especially. Yeah. Well, there it's it's interesting too because we're in a time where um, you know the mainstream media, uh, who is well, typically mainstream news organizations, who've typically kind of been tasked with being the the harbingers of truth and not fiction. Uh, you know, traditionally in the news media was looked at as that. But it seems like right now, while there is a lot of kind of distrust about what people see, kind of in news. It seems like this genre of filmmaking in particular has really taken off. There's a real appetite for people to get real stories out of the people's mouths who live things, but also kind of tell this full circle approach to kind of sensational news stories that go a little bit deeper. And, you know, I'm not trying to create a correlation between kind of the jump in true crime that we see and necessarily, um, you know, criticisms of the news media, but there has to be something leading to this appetite of true crime content, whether it's, you know, kind of the, you know, more uh, gritty stuff like wild, wild country or, or, or your film, or you look at like a fire festival documentary, people seem to be gravitating towards this type of content because they want truth and they want authenticity. What do you guys think is kind of fueling the appetite for these types of stories? I think there's also a dark side to many people. I think they want to they want to appease that dark side just a little bit, even if they just have to watch what somebody else did. But also, by and large, true crime stories kind of have a built in three act structure. They have a good guy. They have a bad guy. They have an emerging narrative. Yeah. Somebody did it. Somebody didn't do it. Somebody may have done it. And then at the end, somebody did it. And aren't we glad that we found out how weird and wild that person is and their motives and their craziness and that I'm not that way, nor is my partner. You know, that may be why people watch true crime. Yeah. (laughs) It's always better to be like, Hey, well, I'm not doing that bad. I'm not like forging documents and planting bombs and stuff. Jared, what do you, what do you think, man? Why do you think so many people are kind of attracted to these types of stories? No, I think they're, You know, a real story just has so much gravitas and, and and weight to it and an impact that fictional stories maybe don't. I think that that's a component of it that people are like, "Wow, can you believe that this really happened? Like this this really occurred." And 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 I think too that there's um just psychologically, I think people <laughs> want to be able to like learn what the bad guys do so they can yeah. protect themselves. And, and, but, but there's just so much inherent cunning and drama. I think within the true crime genre, like people always want to find out like how the enemy yeah. works, you know, and, 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 um, it's, it's just endlessly fascinating. So, so okay. Well, one, one last kind of spoilery question. So if someone hasn't watched the the film, you know, pause it here because this is a real spoiler. Mark Hoffman, you know, uh, the the interviews you guys have is from him being incarcerated. And, you know, we see pictures of him at the end, um, but it's sort of insinuated, you know, did he had no interest in kind of participating in the film. I found that really surprising based on the character at portrayal over the time, because it seemed like someone who wanted recognition and attention and not too dissimilar from, and I, and I hate making comparisons in the genre, but like when you look at like Joe exotic and tiger King, you know, someone who mm-hmm. is in prison through, you know, you find out later kind of at the end of the, at the end of the film or the end of the series that he's been in prison for his crimes 
clung to opportunities to tell his side and and clung to the attention, which if you watch Tiger King, it's like, well, it's no surprise. The guy seemed to be in this. To, you know, he created this whole persona. But the interesting thing with Mark Hoffman is you get the idea that beyond wealth or beyond any sort of animosity he might have had or doubts he might have had about his faith and wanting to discredit the church or anything like that, ultimately his motivation was recognition. What was it like trying to get him to participate? And were you guys surprised that he didn't really have an interest? We tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I've written him dozens of letters in his uh, to his prison, and I've yet to receive any word. So, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that Mark must have felt power in creating these documents. Yeah. And of course he did. I mean, the guy fooled experts. Uh, the guy made millions of dollars. The guy uh, rewrote history because of his forgeries he created in his basement workshop. Right now, he's sitting in a jail cell in a prison in central Utah. Um, he doesn't have much power at all anymore. Yeah. He doesn't wield much say. He's very good at checkers and chess, apparently. He's the, he's the prison camp champ, from what I understand. Yeah. He writes erotic poetry, um, and he reads a lot. He teaches yeah. a math class. See, all of this is stuff like this guy, I'm, I think he would be knocking down the door to be like, hey, man, I'm like this weird kind of genius, dude. You know what? Like, those are all indicators to me that, man, this guy, you know, got to be craving some sort of recognition. But it's so interesting that he's just not. You know. I think that inner need, it, it, that's what he has right now. There's an inner need to hold that power to keep that secret. And he has all those secrets. Mm. He most likely knows that there is a Netflix series that's launching today about him. I've told it. Um, They don't have Netflix at the prison, I suspect, so he probably won't watch it. But somewhere he's feeling a very big sense of pride, knowing that we tried like hell to know everything we could about his life and crimes, and we don't. And we don't know his motives, and we don't know his thinking. We don't know why he did it. And that's the only power he has right now. Well, well, kind of seeing the react, you know, you know, read those stories about uh, Joe Exotic or whatever, and the guards telling him how famous he is after, you know, Tiger King kind of blew up. And I could see, you know, some similar trajectory with someone like Mark Hoffman, because, you know, even though he's villainous, is very fascinating. Do you, uh, Jordan Tyler, think that we've heard the last of Mark Hoffman? No, I think, um, I mean, it remains to be seen what happens if if the release of the series moves the needle with him in wanting to set the record straight on anything and come out and, and, and talk to us or, you know, be open to an interview with someone. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's, look, I mean, one of one of the interesting things about this whole saga is it wasn't just one or two crimes that occurred, but Hoffman had a six year run where almost every transaction was a major crime. And with yeah. those transactions come just an endless amount of stories. And so there were so many things that just didn't end up fitting in our limited three hour series. Right. So um, Tyler yeah. and I could go for days about, you know, things that we wanted to include in the film, but ultimately um, maybe we're too inside baseball and uninteresting to people that don't know Mormonism. But to us, we were just like, holy cow, this is incredible. And ultimately we had really great editors that helped us really zero in on the most relevant moments that 
that uh, really impacted this story. So, well, well, guys, congrats on on the series. It, I was, you know, from the opening scene to the end. I'm not just saying that. I, I watch a lot for you know, and it was just such so captivating, such an interesting story, and you guys executed it so well. Jared and Tyler, I appreciate you guys coming on list it. Thank you for watching. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.